This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast focused on topics that lie on the intersection of energy and finance. This is Hill Vaden, and I am here today with Peter Gardet, who returns after uh, joining us, what, maybe a month ago, uh, to discuss uh, energy finance arrangements. So, Peter, welcome back. Well, thanks, Hill. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about... Uh, Joe Biden and energy policy. Um, you know, I actually, I requested that I had somebody, um, you know, saying that they wanted to hear a little bit more from IHS and what we were looking at in terms of the Biden energy policy and what that means for investment, what it means for energy and other things. Um, before we get into that, though, I wanted we were just talking br- briefly, uh, but beforehand, Malcolm Gladwell has, you know, was mentioned to you as releasing. I think it just went out a, a new book. Um, and you say you've never read any of Malcolm Gladwell's books previously. No, I mean, I used to get The New Yorker, and so I would occasionally read one of those very long articles. <laughs> and I'm familiar with the 10,000 hours, I think, like everyone is, but uh, never read any of those books, incredibly. I've read all of them, uh, it, though less of The New Yorker, though I guess what would the uh, David and Goliath book was just a collection of his New Yorker columns. Um, but, but why I mention it, that his new book is not a book at all um, and is a fully audio, quote unquote, book where, where he, he has taken the, uh, his podcast, Revisionist History, and you know, almost made it into a movie that one would listen to and not watch, which is this one is on uh, what I think is called the Bomber Mafia and it's on Curtis LeMay. And uh, the idea, I think, of World War II of you know, bombing to oblivion to shorten the war. But I, you know, doing these podcasts, I find, and, and I'm by no means comparing this podcast to anything much in the world would ever be associated with. Uh, but but it's an interesting just embrace of this new medium. Um, and, and I know, um, you know, you have been working on, on this specific topic, topic on this Biden topic. Um, through multi-media, uh, I think, you know, just within the past what, month or so, you've published a report to clients, participated in the webinar to clients, now we're doing a podcast, and God knows how many calls on the back. So uh, do you have a preference in any of these forms as a as a content producer? Or content uh, as a content producer, I think you need all of them in a way. I find that, at least personally, I think uh, in different ways when I'm writing as opposed to conversing with someone as opposed to doing a or preparing for a prepare a uh, like a, a speech or a webinar in that sense but I think they all have value and they all kind of work well together uh, which is one of the things that I like uh, I also I'm a huge listener a huge consumer of particularly podcasts and I mm-hmm. find them very efficient if you would like to know about you know, uh, earlier this year, like most people, I went through a period of trying to understand what the hell a SPAC uh, transaction <laughs> was, and there were a 
the number of really good podcasts out there that I think got me up to speed, uh, almost, you know, like taking a self-designed college course. It, it was great, very easy. Efficient because you can multitask or because you just listen well? Uh, I think maybe you listen fast. Uh, I don't know. People listen faster than they read, maybe, or the conversational aspect of it sticks with me better, or just because I listen to them on the treadmill. So it's, like, <laughs> you know, two things at once. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same way. And I I think a lot of it is in multitasking, at least for me, where, where I'm either running or driving. I haven't yet been able to listen to a podcast on one subject or listen to a book on one subject and read about another subject that just get too conflated and, and can't put either one of them together. Um, I can see that. So, so it hasn't allowed me to, to, to double up on, on information. Well, so, so uh, again, we're going to talk about the, the Biden energy is uh, shaping up to be one of the hallmarks uh, of the new, uh, I guess we can still call it new Biden administration. Um, and you and I were, were talking earlier, just you know how important or um, relatively important energy policy is to different presidents. And we were talking specifically about Jimmy Carter. Um, and some 40, 45 years ago was when he gave his famous speech in a cardigan, talking about energy policy. And you know, one of his or a couple of his comments. You know, one of them what was that we must face the fact that the energy shortage is permanent and there's no easy way to solve it quickly or something like that. And his big goal um, or some of his big goals very early in that conversation were on conservation, um, were on different coal technologies, but but almost listening to today, almost defensive from an energy policy standpoint, which compare that to, to Joe Biden from, what was it, two or three weeks ago with, with the leaders uh, climate summit or summit on climate, very offensive, um, not in a negative way, but, but very proactive, I guess is maybe the better word. And he's in a sharp suit and, and everything else, but, but the whole attitude had changed. And I don't know, I haven't read every word or seen every article, but, but I'm not sure how much conservation what was in the dialogue. It was a lot on innovation and a lot on stimulating increased energy as opposed to this energy shortage, um, and, and then lastly, and I'll shut up, but the, uh, the the idea that this next decade, these next 10 years, are going to be the transformative decade and we have to act quickly as opposed to we got to, you know, huddle up and kind of get through this. Um, you know, so, so, so when you're looking at it, what, what, how are you interpreting kind of Biden's policy relative you know, to, to say what we were just talking about with Jimmy Carter? Yeah, so there are definitely uh, differences and similarities. I think one of the biggest differences is that absolutely no one on in the administration has referred to this as an energy policy or an energy plan. You know, this is a climate policy and it's a jobs policy. Uh, the It's not the, you know, American energy plan, it's the American jobs mm -hmm. plan. And that linkage between a... Uh, climate policy that can help uh, incentivize technological development, you know, financial changes in the financial system, uh, changes in the way people do business and live, and that those changes themselves then create jobs is an interesting and somewhat different take uh, that I think started with, uh, and I think, you know, 
it's a less controversial way of thinking about the Green New Deal, which did have the kind of exclusionary aspects where you want to get rid of coal, you want to get rid of fracking, you know, all of these things, you know, you want to label some things as bad and some things as good in the Green New Deal. And it, but it had at its heart this concept that uh, public investment in new systems, whether it be energy infrastructure, uh, sustainable plastics, all these different uh, sort of materials-led technology innovations as supported by public policy can be economic drivers and cre can create lots of new jobs, both in the public and private sector. And I think that's really the key here that, you know, there was this concept, it, I, I've heard it described by the um, National uh, Economic Advisor, Brian Deese, as moving from a a soccer game to a foot race. So in previous eras, you had fossil fuels versus renewables, you know, and it was like a game to see which one would win the future. This is more like everybody is an employee or an economic actor all lined up at a starting gate mm -hmm. and they're going to fire off the starting gun and everyone is going to run as fast as they can in the direction of the future. And the direction of the future in this case has to do with clean tech and climate, you know, climate aligned industry and climate aligned finance. But in a way, climate, you know, changing our approach to emissions that contribute to climate change is almost like a, a beneficiary side effect of economic policy that supports new technology and, and job creation. Does that make it at all more difficult? Um, you know, the, the idea that policy is much better, I would argue, at protecting jobs that exist than creating jobs that, that don't exist. I think there's a very, this is an interesting, large-scale, real-time economic experiment we're about to run uh, on this because there are two schools of thought here. One is very informed by the economic policy of what we might think of as everything from the Roosevelt era through the space race, you know, which they con are constantly comparing. Democrats are constantly bringing up that, you know, the Roosevelt example or the space race example in which large scale public spending in infrastructure and cutting edge technology created the industries of the future. You know, everyone talks about how the internet is an outgrowth of a defense, you know, a Pentagon project. Then there's the other side that, uh, you know, we have a substantial amount of evidence that governments frankly don't allocate money very efficiently or very well. And so are you in fact uh, creating a system that is by its nature not as innovative because it pushes out private market actors by it pumping a lot of uh, public money into efforts that wouldn't necessarily play out. The, earlier we were talking about the law of unintended consequences mm -hmm. and you know the Biden administration like most administrations and this is one areas in which it's it's quite similar is trying to use the tax code to change uh, business policy. And that's a very American way of going about things. It's like, with the, for some reason, the only laws we can ever change are tax laws, you know? <laughs> and so they're attempting to use, to expand quite 
significantly the use of investment and production tax credits for renewables, but also for new technologies that frankly have no commercial application yet. And this builds on a really long tradition. For decades, uh, there was a uh, clause in the tax code called Section 45 that was originated by Jimmy Carter's IRS. And it was intended to promote the creation of a synthetic fuel industry based on the U.S. coal industry. The idea was that, you know, the United, at the time the U.S. was short on oil, fracking hadn't been developed yet, you know, it's very dependent on, on Saudi Arabia and the OPEC countries, so we should use all the coal we have in the ground now, mm -hmm. create fuels, you know, they're advanced, and we're going to do it through the tax code. We're going to give a per ton tax credit to coal companies that are creating advanced fuels. You know, one thing led to another, led to another, and after a few years, what you had was coal companies running run-of-the-mine coal underneath a spraying device that just put diesel and rubber on it to raise the BTU factor, created all this tax equity that then you know, led to, to other investments, including, of all things, Disney World. So I'm sure that when Carter went out to change the energy system, he didn't say, I'm going to put something in the tax code that will lead to the building of Disney World. <laughs> but as how God knows what will happen when we pump however many hundreds of billions of dollars into uh, as yet unproven technologies. It'll be interesting to see. No well, I think um, one of those, another unintended consequence, I, I think, in you know, I guess I should be careful saying this on a podcast, but but I think that Reynolds wrap or, or aluminum foil is is an outcome of the space race. That uh, that there was something that was needed to handle whatever is going on with the rocket in space, and now we can wrap our you know our buns in aluminum foil thanks to our moon ambitions. Yeah, so it's an ongoing kind of bigger theme: the role of you know let's call it the state in funding and kind of identifying uh, future economic pathways and encouraging uh, you know, new companies to develop to serve them, and then uh, openness to market solutions and trying to find that balance after everything <laughs> that's happened since you know, 2008 and the great financial crisis. You know, we're living in interesting times, let's put it that way. Well, and there was some efforts uh, by Obama with fractions of the money that we're talking about now, uh, which in some ways, at least, you know, for my age, it's kind of awesome, you know, regardless of one's politics, to, to, to look at these kind of big numbers, you know, and compare it to some of these FDR, LBJ, you know, kind of big government efforts, because I haven't seen it before. Um, and whether it's good or bad, I'll leave up to the talking heads on TV, but but it's it's, it's a a different discussion and compared to say 2008 which was you know at its worst a kind of a bailout or broken system and at its best a way to kind of rebuild um, what was a fractured system but it did include some energy or climate directed um, monies uh, you know the, the, the famous example and they you know name the people remember is cylinder but there are plenty I, I would guess, and I'm sorry that I don't have numbers to quote or anything, I would guess that for the, for the Solyndra, there's still a lot of unintended or very well-intended, very intentionally intended positives that, that came from that, what was it, $80 billion or thereabouts, $90 billion? 
Yeah, it was a pretty substantial amount of money at the time, although everything seems like it's you know, <laughs> right. small by comparison. A billion dollars used to mean something. Uh, but yeah, Tesla is the is the counter to that. You know, there was stimulus ACCA money that went into uh, Solyndra, for sure. And then there was ACCA money that went into Tesla. And, you know, what was the... If the goal was to bring down the price of solar panels, then even though it was not accomplished by funding Solyndra, that is what happened in the end. So, yeah, I I think it's clear that the Biden administration is taking the what the Obama administration did and and supersizing it in many ways. And in many ways, it's the same team. I mean, we talked about the the big foreign policy summit uh, from a couple weeks ago and you know, the names, the figures in that room are all pretty familiar. I mean, John Kerry was Secretary of State, not under the current president. And mm-hmm. yet there he is again, essentially playing that role alongside Secretary Blinken, you know, in promoting the U.S. as a as being kind of back on the stage. When, and I think the, uh, the, the White House press release from that April 22nd or 3rd, you know, the very end of the uh, first paragraph says something like America is back or something. It was very Hollywood-esque as, you know, the, the game is back on. Uh, so, I, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, I guess excitement, whether enthusiasm is right where there's certainly a lot of excitement uh, with the change in conversation. You know, talking about the, the, the public, public-private partnership, you know, yes, I think there's always concern or risk of public money pushing out or crowding out private investment, but there seems to be a, a, I'll say, intentionality into looking at public and private together and creating, you know, that this isn't a government exercise on its own. No, for sure is not. I think over and over and over you've heard from the administration, and I think that was particularly true in the kind of foreign policy-focused climate leaders summit, that the no matter how much money or effort any individual government or state undertakes, it's a global problem and it's a problem of such scale that uh, it will require substantial, meaningful, you know, private sector solutions here. And that those private sector solutions can be a huge opportunity, both for the countries uh, and the economies that they're part of. So. When we look at some of the kind of the big stated goals, I, mean, I think some of the, the, the big ones were that, that the power sector was supposed to be 100% carbon free by 2035 and we're supposed to reduce emissions relative to 2005 levels by 50 to 52% by 2030, right? And those are those ambitions are inclusive of hydro and nuclear. Um, I, I think in both cases, when, when you're looking at it, where where are the potential sectors um, who, who we really expect it to, to be, call it, call it the winners or, or the, the, the ones who really just got a shot in the arm, uh, no, no pun intended, for the other Biden uh, initiative? Yeah, so there's a couple, you know, devils in the detail here. So when it comes to uh, renewable energy, particularly particularly wind and solar, and to a lesser degree, you know, hydrogen, and we'll call it carbon capture and storage as, as part of that, even though it's not a renewable energy, it kind of fits within the same clean tech thesis. I would argue that the way that the funding as proposed works really, really favors 
uh, projects that are already in the pipeline. So the direct pay element of the, the tax credit proposals uh, means that a lot of renewable energy and these other projects uh, will almost immediately be in the money. You know, they'll have this incredible financial cushion straight away. It's another, it's grant making by another name. Uh, and so in that case, I think those, if you want to talk about a shot in the arm, that is like, you know, steroids for that particular <laughs> sector. Uh, another sector that I think is clearly going to benefit here is the electric vehicle sector. Electric vehicles have a lot of uh, innate advantages and those are getting more and more apparent as battery prices fall and companies, manufacturers become more comfortable manufacturing and selling EVs and customers themselves become more comfortable driving them. But this will, I think the whole uh, way the plan is structured will accelerate that timeline, the timeline of the uptake of EVs and the retirement of internal combustion engines. Whether it will happen quite on the scale that the Biden administration is uh, looking at, you know, or on the timeline, you know, I, I'm of the opinion it will take a little bit longer just because it's difficult to retire out the current fleet, much less the coming fleet. And then the final piece of it that I think was super interesting is around carbon pricing and offset trading. So there's a, a significant part of the economy that isn't covered by current technology deployment. So when you're talking about the power sector, you know, it is plausible to retire all fossil fuel power generation and replace it with renewables in the next decade plus. Like that is, you know, technically feasible, even mm -hmm. if it's uh, hard to imagine. It is technically feasible that we will get uh, switch out the car fleet and replace it with EVs. At the moment, it is not technically feasible that we will replace steel, concrete, uh, you know, chemicals, plastics, there's a number of sectors that are hard to abate, as they call it, or really fundamentally at this point, almost impossible to abate. And so those will need to be covered by some kind of allowance system whereby you overcompensate in your emissions pathway. You take the power system down faster in terms of emissions than you would otherwise in order to compensate for the fact that you're overproducing uh, on that pathway from chemicals and, and some manufacturing processes. And the difference between those two is going to be covered by offsets. And the question has always been, how big is that offset market going to be? Because the larger it is, uh, it will help dictate price. It will help di dictate kind of who participates. Uh, is a, a big open question here of like what that will look like. And the announcement of the nationally determined contribution, which was that 50% number that you were talking about, mm -hmm. makes a big a big step in that direction. It gives us a lot more shape around what the policy approach to uh, the policy space for a carbon market will be. It essentially says that 50% of the economy is going to be covered by some form of offset. And so that's a pretty big market and that's a lot of opportunity for trading firms, financial firms, anyone who handles sort of commodity or price or operational risk to come in and say, okay, now I understand how much of the economy is going to be covered by 
essentially a trading system as opposed to a direct diktat that uh, you must replace a coal plant with a with a solar facility, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I guess a lot of that is stopping at kind of a, uh, call it a business level, where, where you know the owner of the power plant or the owner of the cement plant has to make a decision and to, you know, I suppose, buy that offset. I think the one thing that kind of hangs out as different is uh, electric vehicles. And, you know, I'm talking to you with, uh, I own two cars, both of which are powered by gasoline. I bought one of them with intentions of giving it to my son when he turns 16. He's like 10, so so I don't plan on buying a new car for for a very long time. How does the consumer kind of fit into this? Is the consumer indifferent except when it comes to electric vehicles as long as that cost isn't passed through to him or her in, in a way that uh, he or she notices? I mean, I, I think there will be some kind of lingering market for uh, internal combustion engine vehicles well into the future. I, I don't anticipate that the gasoline-powered car is going to disappear from our roads in the next 10 years. Having said that, the electric vehicle is cheaper and simpler uh to produce if done in scale, if appropriately tied in with a charging network is cheaper to operate and own. And if battery prices continue to fall, and that's kind of, to me, the more the wild card there, you know, it's going to be cheaper to buy up front. And so if you end up with a system whereby either producers, uh, you know, manufacturers of, let's call them legacy auto technology, the gas-powered engine, are required to buy offsets or to somehow increase life cycle emissions of a vehicle, they're going to pass those costs on to consumers. Whereas if an electric vehicle is allowed to kind of take all of its displaced emissions up front, it doesn't need to pass those those costs onto consumers. And so the price differential will just continue to grow over time. And eventually, you know, for everyone except maybe a hobbyist or an enthusiast of like, you know, classic cars, Mm -hmm. you're going to see people make the economic choice, which will be electric vehicles. When buying a new car or when when buying buying a a new to you car, right? Yeah. I guess it was cash to clunkers. What was that, Obama? Or was that... I believe, yeah, it was partially. I haven't owned it. I mean, we talked about this on the last yeah. podcast. Like, I haven't owned a car in a long time. But yeah, I think those are those programs can be part of it. And I think, you know, 10 years from now, if uh, all else has gone well, it could be part of the policy solution. But um, for now, the as you said, like the main thing that the administration is trying to do is to promote new technology new ways of doing business, new manufacturing, and really use that to drive investment and job creation. And cash for clunkers really doesn't do that. So another thing, you and I were talking again, I guess, before we started, but but you described this as really being policy following the market. And a lot of this stuff is in motion. We're, We're coming off of a 2020 when some of the hottest investments will put SPACs to the side for a little while, but some of the hottest investments were solar or Tesla or some of these clean energy ideas. Can you talk a little bit about how that's different from policy leading the market and, and why that why that matters? Yeah, sure. I mean, 
there are ways in which policy or policy actions can lead the market. And we talked earlier about all of the products that came out of DARPA or like these, you know, the defense agencies or these other research agencies within the government. And uh, then there are markets over time that have been created essentially by regulation. So ethanol is a good one. Mm -hmm. Would ethanol have existed as a market without, you know, government regulation? You know, hard to argue that it would have. In this case, however, although electric vehicles are a small portion of car sales today, you know, they are growing super rapidly off of zero to where they are today. The, uh, economic and kind of co-benefits of an EV beyond the emissions profile is so self-evident that when you add the emissions premium to it, you know, any kind of carbon avoidance premium or greenhouse gas avoidance premium to that, it just, it's such a compelling economic argument. That's something I go kind of over and over to with our clients is that Yes, we should absolutely, you know, as an investor, you should care about the planet and you should care about climate policy for lots of different reasons. You know, your investment remit, um, your concerns about governance issues, all kinds of things. But fundamentally, you should be interested in clean tech because it is, you know, essentially free at the point of production. So sunlight and wind Mm -hmm. don't cost you anything. It is more efficient at the point of use. So electric systems are just, you know, fundamentally more efficient to use than keeping a tiny motor running everywhere all the time. And uh, finally, it fits in very well with digitalization and kind of the Internet of Things concept that's that's going to be part of the way we manage our lives in the future. If you can run a kind of electric vehicle fleet using, you know, an integration with your phone. That's something that is just has a, a self-evident aspect to it as far as the, the future goes in the future economy. And to look at, I think there will come a time in the future when we'll look at, you know, internal combustion cars and wonder if we, how they'll look crazy. It'll look like <laughs> a, a diesel powered engine. Yeah. It'll look like a, having a diesel powered engine on your laptop. You know, it's like, uh, it'll look steampunk that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will be amazed that we ever drove around with little, um, gas-filled motors on the front of our cars. So what about, I mean, one of the other thing in terms of kind of uh, following the market, you know, the, in some of the media coverage, you know, of the summit, you know, I think some of the uh, major papers pointed out that, you know, greenhouse gas from power plant uh, emissions have dropped 36% over the past 10 years, 2010, 2020. And a lot of that was on the back of shale gas or, or fracking. And electricity, price, electricity prices at the same period have dropped some 15%. And so you've had this perfect storm of consumers winning, the ozone winning, um, the US winning from a supply security standpoint. There, you know, we, we can get into, there was a lot of kind of government stuff, you know, details that led to shale gas in, in the first place. Where does natural, natural gas isn't clean tech, right? Where, where does natural gas fit into this equation? And does the administration know? Um, or is there some sort of ambivalence with how to deal with a, a cleaner burning fossil fuel? Yeah, natural gas has a role to play. I mean, it's the used to be called the bridge fuel. I feel like that mm-hmm. terminology has people backed away from it recently. 
ironically, I think some of the ways that the sort of Biden American Jobs Plan funding would work might actually maintain the use of natural gas for longer than it might otherwise, uh, just because it will depress power prices in certain areas and kind of create these renewable energy islands and that the sort of interlinkages between those will need to be fueled by something and it will be fueled by natural gas. Uh, Yeah, I think natural gas has a role to play here and it will continue to be part of the solution. Natural gas becomes clean tech in a way if you want to really stretch it, uh, when you can offset it either technologically or through financial mechanism, and you can do that at a large enough scale. So I think this is where, if you're an investor, the clean tech thesis has interesting sort of offshoots. You know, you can say, uh, I'm interested in carbon capture and storage, which is clearly a clean tech thesis, as it fits with natural gas infrastructure, then that becomes uh, an interplay. I think something else we've seen is the concept of LNG into hydrogen. And so you have liquefied natural gas being made into hydrogen. So if you build, use the LNG you know, revenue stream today to build out infrastructure that is capable of handling hydrogen, which is harder to handle than natural gas, then you're ready to become a hydrogen company rather than a natural gas company. So everything is in this interesting transition point, and it's really about looking for where those technological and financial tipping points are. So I I guess uh, another question on this, in terms of kind of the the timing of this, um, in a sense, campaign kind of moving to action. And from an investor standpoint, if we look at some of these other presidential kind of big bets, FDR, LBJ, whatever done, that they were done with traditional, you know, bills from Congress that move to a signature and have a certain permanence or a certain tenure with them, that they weren't executive orders. Personally, executive orders drop me bananas. I would imagine that they drive investors bananas because every four years, the bet that you made or the decision that you made on that executive order could be undone. Uh, we're, we're seeing that you know, now in the first 100, 125 days of Biden, we saw it with, you know, several presidents before going all the way back to, you know, I don't know when the first kind of was. We've already seen one executive order tied to the uh, uh, the, the emissions or I guess the, the what was it, the Congressional Review Act um, that, that removed uh, uh, or changed the way emissions from, uh, putative emissions from gas and oil wells were handled. Do we expect this to be a call it more deliberate process that goes through the traditional congressional channels and has more permanence? Or are there things where we should look for executive orders to really drive momentum before the political will is there for a more permanent policy? Yeah, I mean, there's what are the prospects for the American Jobs Plan? That is, and the other big Biden legislative pushes, that is, is frankly an open question, but one that we will probably see settled in the coming months. To me, the most interesting question, having watched these, uh, having watched financial firms and energy companies interact with Washington for a couple decades now, uh, is what happens with policy at the agency level. So uh, whether that's derived from an executive order legislation or 
court cases, and here is some place where administrative law judges, for example, mm-hmm. have an incredible amount of power. You know, that the way that uh, policy is implemented at the agencies is the way that it will really affect an investor's bottom line or an operator's bottom line. Uh, a good example is the Dodd Frank. You know, that was legislation. It went through the whole process. It was passed by Congress, signed by the uh, president, and went into uh, force. And because uh, some of the agencies involved were just too slow or not that interested in enforcing it, there are still remaining statutes, you know, over a decade later that are are not in force uh, as envisioned. So uh, if I would recommend to any investor interested in how this will play out as an interaction between, you know, their investment thesis and a poli- open policy question to pay more attention to what's going on at the agency and commission level necessarily than what's going on in the kind of uh, broader political headline environment. Are those agencies able to act uh, ahead of any sort of uh, activity within Congress or do they need to wait on some sort of signature, whether it be you know, a full legislative you know, rewrite or not? They have a surprising amount of uh, leeway. I would say that a lot of what people think can only be done by Congress is actually done at the agency level, Congress, you know, the law is the law. These agencies and commissions are prohibited from doing some things or allowed to do others under law as passed by Congress. But the way that they implement it, those like the paragraph, like in the middle of those thousand page bills, that is really crucial to an individual project's prospects. And so, again, it's more about knowing what the kind of environment, to use the word, at a particular agency is, who the people in charge of that agency are, like that's going to be much more crucial to the fate of any individual project or investment uh, in a way that I think it can get very easily, you know, people get very easily wrapped up in the drama of Capitol Hill and lobbying mm-hmm. and the, the legislative packages. You know, it's important for sure. It sets the law, but um, when it really comes down to it, uh, you should be paying attention to what's happening at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the Department of Commerce. You know these agencies that EPA. are easy to ignore. EPA, all of those. So th- thinking about timing, I mean, the, the, there's two kind of you know almost finish line is the wrong word, but 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 if we, if if this is a transformative decade and we got to act quickly, coming up over the next six months, we've got the, the, the G20, I think on Halloween, uh, right around the time period of Halloween, followed, I guess, immediately by, uh, like immediately to the day by the COP26, or the UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties. Uh, I guess one question, are, are people flying, you know, quite literally from one conference to the other, or, or are these new conversations with, with new individuals? And do we expect action from the U.S. side before either of those things happen? Uh, yes to all three of those questions. <laughs> so uh, I think if you are in this space and you are interested in it, don't plan to take any time off in September, October, November. Like those are the three big months because that is, we're looking at September to be the time frame for any legislative action that does happen to go back to the Biden plan. We're looking at the G20 for, uh, and, you know, to some degree, the 
UN General Assembly, which also happens in September in New York. So there's the Biden plan, the UN General Assembly, the G20, as you say, right before COP26, and then COP26 in early November in Glasgow. So at each of those, you know, you're going to see major, major action, I think. It would be a truly surprising and a real uh, be seen as a really big failure. I think if at the G20 there was not significant action on tying sort of broader commitments, multilateral commitments to ground level policy and action among the G20. And then at uh, COP26, which will be a much larger event, you know, just in terms of the number of people who go and the number of interested parties to then see a great deal of a huge number of like announcements Mm -hmm. and uh, actions and financings and all the kind of implementation pieces of those multilateral commitments linked to national policy linked to what's actually going to happen on the ground. And do we expect the U.S. to arrive at, at both events being able to look back and say, look at what we just got through? Um, the, the U.S. Or, or is it somebody going to be arriving at the event and say, "Look at what we're working on. We need to help, you know, set a framework." I mean, is there? I think we're past frameworks at this point. I mean, I think again, if there is not some major, meaningful movement, some actual commitment uh, written into law or policy at that point, not only in the United States but across the major economies, I think that the participants will view it as a failure. All right. That is, a, I think, a good place for us to leave. I found this conversation pretty fascinating. So, so thank you for, for joining another uh, podcast with me. It's always great to talk to you. And we will uh, talk with you again soon if you are nice enough to join us back. <laughs> always. All right. Thank you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.